Hey everyone, welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. I am your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and this is your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And Kevin today may sound a little far away, but that's because he's in the midst of his move and you're talking on, what are you talking on? I'm using a phone headset on an 18.4 inch Android tablet called the Samsung Galaxy View, which is a little ridiculous when you think about it, but it suits my intended purpose, which is to use a, a kitchen computer or a kitchen tablet to watch content online and so on and so forth. And hey, it just so happens to work with Skype as well. So Ta-da! Kevin always has crazy gear. I mean, I have crazy gear, but none of my gear actually does what it's supposed to do. His does. <laughs> this does backflips. No, no. Just kidding. You could have it do backflips, but then it probably wouldn't work as a tablet. You could do one backflip. One. <laughs> So this week in the podcast, we're going to be talking about the end of iFi and how to end of life a connected device. We're going to talk about reports of a patent for a Nest connected crib. We're going to talk about best practices for ending your account as part of me talking about the Arlo connected camera. And that was a lot of talking about, so I'm going to not use that phrasing anymore. And our guest this week is Ryan Reist, who is the VP of Innovation for American Family Mutual Insurance Co. So we're going to be talking about the future of insurance and also kind of what's next for the smart home on the insurance front. It's going to be good. Hey, y'all. Just a quick break to talk about Ayla Networks, which provides the industry's first agile IoT platform, accelerating development, support, and ongoing enhancements of connected products for the Internet of Things. Ayla's software fabric runs across devices, the cloud, and apps to create secure connectivity, data analytics, and feature-rich customer experiences. Offered as a cloud platform as a service, Ayla's flexibility and modularity enables rapid changes to practically any type of device, cloud, and app environment. And now, back to the show. So, let's kick it off with the end of iFi. Kevin, you want to... You told me about this. I kept doing a web search for I, the letter I, Fi, F-I. I'm like, what are you talking about? I completely forgot because I used to review all the products from I, Fi, but it's spelled E-Y-E, Fi. These are like um, SD cards with, with like Wi-Fi radios in them. And you would use those to get your photos from a non-connected camera to some other device. I mean, you could always take the card out and just pop it in another computer and whatnot, but that gets rid of the whole sneaker net thing. It, it was literally, it would just wirelessly transfer things. But obviously at this point, the rise of smartphones and other connected devices have kind of obviated the need for a lot of this. Yes. iFi's came out, man, like in 2005 or 2006. That's, yeah, I'd say six-ish, 2006 sounds about right. Yeah. And, you know, the iPhone came out in 2007. So you've got to travel back in time to an era where people actually had those little point and shoot cameras, which, you know, I had one and it was, it was a little frustrating. You would, you'd take a picture and then you'd be like, well, now I have a digital picture. And if you wanted to, you could connect it usually with a USB cord and some proprietary software, and then you could get it on your computer and then you could do things with it. But the iFi was pretty awesome. And then it made it easier. You just shared it via that. It didn't always work. I had really iffy experiences with them. Well, you know, because it worked two different ways. And we said at the beginning of the segment, the end of iFi, and one of the ways sort of will still work. I, I will talk about that in a minute. But the main way that I think people used it was to have their photos sent automatically to an, through a, a Wi-Fi network that they were around 
up to the cloud and then they would be synced down to whatever devices you wanted and set up and everything. And it seems to me as I read the information on iFi's site that after September 16th, that whole cloud bit is pretty much defunct because you can't sign up for new accounts after September 16th and so on and so forth. There's another piece of it, which I think they call direct mode, which would set up an ad hoc network so that you could just wirelessly transfer to a mobile device those photos from, uh, say, a DSLR or a point-and-shoot that had the card in it. So that is theoretically still working, and it should still work because that doesn't have anything to do with the cloud, but there's no guarantee it will work, so the iFi people say, after September 16th. And so people are really upset because iFi basically sent out an email last week saying that they were going to shut that aspect of the service down, basically all the cloud stuff. And people, they had stopped development of these cards in 2012, but they were sold through authorized retailers through March, 2015. So people were like, hey, this is like a little over a year that I've had this if they had just bought one. And then apparently unauthorized retailers were still selling them. So like, you know, if you go on Amazon, sometimes you can buy something that isn't available anymore. Those people may have bought it, you know, who knows when they would have bought it. And those people are really upset because they've purchased something that, you know, maybe they didn't even get a year's worth of life out of. Right. And not all of the products are actually being discontinued or unsupported after the 16th of September. And I say that because it's the X2 cards that are very specifically mentioned here. And those are the older ones. And they are, they being iFi, they are giving people the ability to upgrade to their Mobi Pro 16 gig cards up to three units at a 20% discount. And you have to do that before September 15th. Um, So they still have something that's going to happen. In fact, I'm looking at the the website now, the Mobi Pro cards, if you buy them now, you get one year of the iFi cloud service. So it's literally just one product line that is being discontinued here with cloud service. But it's it's probably their largest one, to be honest. Right. Been around the longest. They say this is a security issue. And this brings up a couple things. So I'm sure we're going to hear that it is like the second revolve. I think it's worth thinking about what it means when you buy a connected device how long-term the support is going to be. And for the manufacturers, do they need to put closer watch on their retail channels, authorized retail channels, and kind of plan for, if you're going to obsolete something, maybe you shorten your window and then you go after unauthorized retailers more aggressively. There's kind of pros and cons to that because, you know, sometimes things aren't sold through authorized retailers you know, for a variety of reasons, maybe it's refurbished, which we'll get to that later, that could be bad. But it could also just be a mechanism of controlling your channel, which sometimes isn't the best for the end consumer. That's where I was going. A lot of this is dictated by the inventory channel. So it's one thing for a manufacturer or a product designer to know that at some point, we we may have to obsolete this or whatever. But do they plan for that inventory? Probably not. If people are going to still buy them, chances are they're going to keep making them. Or at least keep selling To a point. (laughs) I mean, they're going to sell what they have, what they've got in the channel. So consumers don't, we don't know. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes and what the plans are. So it's it's really frustrating. It is. And I guess we'll skip ahead a little bit and come back to the wind Mm. stuff. Because this ties into the Arlo camera from Netgear. So I've been testing this out and we'll talk about it in a minute. But it was two weeks ago, I want to say. It was recently the subject of a 
security kind of thread on Reddit. And at issue was that someone had bought an Arlo camera, decided they didn't like it and returned it. And then a couple weeks later, they logged into their account or they got a notification on their They got a notification that the, the camera noticed uh, some motion. The camera that they returned to the vendor that they bought it from, they got an email about it. Correct. Exactly. And this person was like, well, that's terrible that I can see this family who had apparently purchased his discarded cameras. So Netgear's response was like, we're aware of this, which is why we tell our sellers to actually send the devices back to Netgear for a hard reset, which wasn't done in this case. (laughs) So that makes me feel like, okay, are the retailers, so are your authorized retailers going to be your friend, your foe, and are you going to treat them if they're going to be such an important link in the chain here? Is, you know, we've got to rethink the relationship between the consumer and retailers and then the manufacturers and their authorized retailers. I see both sides of this one. For one thing, we should mention, if we didn't already, the person who returned the cameras, he didn't like reset them or do anything. He said he forgot to reset them. So there's some burden on the consumer to think ahead, which, you know, any IoT device, if you're no longer going to use it or you're going to retire it, you should be trying to factory reset it if at all possible. And he did not do that. But to your point, yeah, we've got a level of trust with these third-party vendors or these middleware people that you know sell products. I don't know what vendor Middleware? <laughs> I think they're just called middlemen. <laughs> <laughs> middlemen, yeah. Can you tell I did IT for 15 years a long time ago? I, I yeah, I mean, so the, the middleman in this transaction didn't do their job. But the fact of the matter is retailers don't make money doing things like that. Retailers make money by selling products. So what's the incentive for that retailer to send it back to Netgear or try and, you know, factory reset it themselves to sell as a refurbished unit or something? I mean, there's got to be a better system. There does. And with connectivity, we actually have a really good way of going about and doing this. So I will say it's possible to know when a connected device changes networks, Wi-Fi networks, for example. It could be very easy for maybe not very easy, but when a new device connects to a new network, ask the person, are you XYZ, the last known person on this account? It's very similar to how if you log on to like a web services account from a different computer, sometimes they will be like, you'll either get an email or some sort of notification saying, by the way, you just logged on to a completely new device. Is this you? Or the web service will say, "I you've not logged in here on this computer, you know, please enter this password or whatever. And there's another level of authorization. Exactly. So if, if something like that is doable, that could be a way around something like this. Mm -hmm. The other thing is as, as someone who tests a lot of these devices, I create counts, download stuff, and then, you know, put things on my network and then I send them back on, Mm -hmm. you know, a weekly basis. So I will say that I always look for a way to delete the device or do a hard reset on my devices. I will say though, that not every product offers that. That is also true. And every product should, I mean, that should be a given for these types of devices. Yeah. When you create your software sometime before, you know, alpha testing and sending it out for beta, you need to have a way to at a minimum, delete the device from your account in the software. So I guess we're asking for three things here. Hard reset button on the device, a way to to delete the device from your account in the app. And then three is 
If you want to get extra fancy, create an extra layer of security by noting when a device changes a network. One other thought here. I don't want to let Netgear off the hook here, and here's why, why I'm saying this, and you can tell me what you think. The fact of the matter is this guy returned his camera, okay. When he got the email notification that says, hey, your camera just detected motion, obviously that camera is connected in somebody else's house. They have their own account that is tied to that camera. And yet his account is also tied to that camera. That should never happen. Yes, that is true. It should be a one-to-one, you know, user-to-device. You could, though, argue, like right now... Well, we have a way to, because I shared my Arlo cameras with you so you could see what it's about. Yes, you so, did, which I forgot to look. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Stacey had a big party for 4th of July. I missed it because I was packing. There go you go. You were, you were not like, it's not even Skyping it. It'd be watching from a camera. <laughs> it's like the watching lowest form of communication. <laughs> shooting off fireworks and drinking while I'm sitting here packing up uh, U-Hauls. <laughs> I, I can see why you skipped that. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. But in that case, you're... Did you have to create a separate account to get access to it? Yes, I do. It's easy to accept this invitation. I'm reading the email that when you invited me, Stacey, that I, I got, I just take advantage of. Create your own arlo.netgear.com account. So there you go. So, so I would have to, so it is tying multiple accounts to a device. There's got to be a better way. Sorry. Okay. I was like, because that's, that's a semi-legit reason to do it is if you wanted to invite, you know, Maybe it's something in the baby's room and you want to invite the grandparents to see it. I, yeah. I oh, you're right. You're right. I mean, there, I don't know what, if there's a better way, one that's more secure and so on, but I don't know. It just seems like, yeah, these two accounts, obviously these folks are not on purpose sharing their camera with him. His account is just still attached to it. Right. And so there needs to be some division there between a, an account that has access to the camera because it's their camera and an account that is shared or temporary. Like maybe these folks should be able to shut this off. Like I would imagine that if you didn't want me seeing your rooftop camera anymore, you could shut me off. I can. I can. I can disinvite you. I wonder if these people can. I, I don't know. That is another good question. <laughs> and that, that actually, when you buy a new connected device, are there things that you should look for as a user to see if it's been bought and sold or if there's other accounts attached to it, I imagine there's not. Well, there are a lot of these devices, they use um, tape to close the boxes and some of them, you can tell if it's been opened, I suppose you could reseal that particular tape, but a lot of things have ink printed tape that says, you know, if this has been tampered with, it's oh, obviously no. been opened. The Arlo packaging is nightmarish. I remember unpacking these things and I was like, holy cow, how am I ever going to get this back together to send it back? But so I imagine it looked tampered with. <laughs> Sorry, I'm like, I'm having flashbacks to that because that was actually a huge deal. I was like, oh, this is yeah. just so arduous. Okay, that's probably enough of that. Um, we'll talk about the Arlo cameras next show because I've actually got some other cameras we can do like a all cameras all the time. Um, let's skip to the Nest Connected Crib for a moment because... Dang, I thought this was pretty cool. This is Recode found a patent. So we have no idea if Nest is actually working on this or not. But it is a connected crib that has, gosh, cameras, microphones, sensors in the mattress. I mean, it's... Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi. Well, of course. A thermostat. No, no, that's what they're known for. Oh, no, so no. 
no, no. There's they no. They do have a wave to a wave to quiet the baby. No, that would be <laughs> worth it. So worth it. So I will say, parenting is one of those markets in the IoT that feels just rich because parents, yes. new parents will spend gobs of money on ridiculous stuff. And only later when they like return to sanity, are they like, wait, did I just drop a thousand dollars on a crib? What? Oh, no, no, no. This is a baby shower wish list item. <laughs> you have somebody else buy this for you. Maybe. I did also note that I bought a crib. I did buy the mattress and then I bought a baby monitor. And Nest is like, hey, why don't we lump all this together into one like magical system. That makes sense to me though. I mean, it seems like the next logical step, baby monitor is great and nothing, you know, cameras, microphones, etc. But I mean, if you've got sensors in there to track the baby's movements, you can tell if the baby is asleep without having to go in there. Yeah, I guess you could tell from the camera as well, unless, you know, you can't see the baby's face. I, you know, I think there's a lot of value in that. And there are mattresses that like will detect SIDS for you. So sudden mm -hmm. death syndrome. Very important. Mm -hmm. And they, I mean, it's, some of them are sensors that are underneath the mattress. Some of them are mattresses themselves. And there's also a whole generation of companies like Owlet and Sproutling and Mimo that offer some sort of wearable that you either attach to the baby's clothing or you put a sock on them or like a little bracelet around their foot. I guess mm -hmm. that would be an anklet. This is a rich market because people will pay anything. There's a lot of information you could get. I love the idea of having like, you could track your baby's weight very well through like just putting a sensor inside the mattress. Sure. So I think Wythings, I think it's Wythings has a baby scale, just a straight up connected baby scale. So, I mean, there's a lot that could be done here. Yeah. I wonder if they could even add, and I, I don't think it's listed in the patent, but um, or the patent application, you know, to tell the actual skin temperature of the baby and then tie that to, and just so happens that they make a thermostat, but tie that to the thermostat to, you know, cool the baby down or add heat as needed. Add heat. <laughs> add heat, flip over <laughs> after 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. They're done. Um, so I will say, though, baby cribs are one of those things where you're not supposed to resell them in a lot mm. of cases because there's, baby cribs are subject to crazy numbers of recalls. But a lot of people, you know, a baby crib is not a device that it's like a generational thing, like Literally, my daughter slept in my old, very not safe baby crib that was at my parents' house, you know, when we'd go visit. And please do not turn me into the CPS. But with a connected crib and like the, the life cycles we're seeing, this is something that, I mean, is it going to be recyclable or what? Because this isn't something I feel like you could have for like 25 years and keep it in your attic waiting for your grandchild. No, not if it's all integrated in. I mean, if it's add-ons to a crib frame or something in the mattress, that's one thing. But if it's integrated in, no, I mean, it's like saying the smartphone that I bought this year is going to be my smartphone in 25 years. Obviously, that's not the case. So yes, a lot of skepticism here about kind of if this is a product, what it might look like. I will say I talked to a parent and she was like, oh, that sounds awesome. I can't wait. I'm thinking, okay. So that's the possible Nest crib. And what else do we have? Let's talk about Wink. Last week, we spent a lot of time on Wink with the relay switch, which was the connected Wi-Fi light switch that tied into your Wink system and showed you all kinds of cool stuff. And we said that it was $149 for two and $99 for one. Come to find out later that Wink had actually done that as a promotional price. And I was not aware of this. 
So after we launched the podcast, we got a bunch of questions from people saying, hey, it's not $149 anymore. So I reached out to Wink and they said, yes, it was initially a promo, but we decided to make that the standard MSRP. So now, so if you bought it for more, I would email Wink. Tell them Stacy sent you. Tell them, seriously, tell them I sent you. I'm fine with that. I don't know if that'll have any leeway, but sure. So there you go, guys. And a lot of you guys seemed really interested in this product. So we can't wait to hear hear feedback. Yeah, I was actually disappointed when people started coming back and saying, hey, I can't get the deal. And I actually was online. And I was able to get the deal for whatever reason, but I didn't buy it. And I'm like, oh, I did I miss out on this? I haven't bought it yet because I'm moving and I want to rack up the credit card. So I'm thrilled that it's two for 149. Yes. So there we go. Rush on out if you are so inclined. All right. Final news of note is we got to talk about this because I'm a, I'm a sucker for wireless networks. And yes, you are. <laughs> Kevin will keep me from going too deep. All right. Uh, no, so this is, this is important. This is worth talking about. Laura, which I think we've talked about in the past. We actually had Daniel Conrad, the CEO of Beep Networks, which is a Laura network to talk about the standard. It's a long distance, low data rate network for the internet of things. Competitors would include Sigfox, which is doing kind of a proprietary same thing. Some of the LTEs got Cat0, LTEM, are all efforts to kind of take LTE and create these low data rate networks. And then there's Ingenue, and I want to say there's a couple others running around out there. I don't know what happened with waitlists. Um, yeah, I always, I always thought they were just going to use older 3G networks for all this stuff, but apparently... There's more efficiencies in redoing these things. There are. And, you know, 3G is going to sunset eventually, not anytime soon. 2G is being sunsetted right now. And that's after, what, 15 years? Uh, At least. At least, if not more. This is cheaper. There's battery life considerations. Like 3G is not the most power efficient modem. There's, you know, the cost of the modem itself. So it, it makes sense. They're also redesigning for like cellular, they're redesigning things like the number of packets that are in the header. So you can create these smaller payloads basically to send over the network. So there's a lot happening here. Sometimes it's it's better to start with a new plan. Anyway, back to Laura, because a couple big news announcements have happened. There's a company in the US called Senet, S-E-N-E-T, that has built a Laura network in 110 US cities. Woo! And before you get too excited, know that these are very small cities and this only covers about, it's less than 10% of the population. But it's really a great start. There are other companies who are trying to build LoRa networks in the US. So, you know, we could see our smoke detectors and I'm trying to think of other things that you might want. Uh, sensors like parking sensors could all be good yeah, candidates for this. I was just going to say all the smart city type devices, you know. Exactly. And speaking of smart cities, SK Telecom is doing a the first, I believe, nationwide LoRa network, and they're doing it in South Korea. And they actually put out pricing, which looks pretty good. Yeah, they're saying it's one-tenth the pricing of their LTE-based IoT uh, offerings, which you know maybe it gets into creating something new from scratch. They're able to do so more efficiently. But they have six different plans for companies or cities that want to use their lower network, ranging from, well, I don't, before I talk about prices, the data allowances, I should mention, range from 100 kilobytes to 100 megabytes, which if you buy or use a cell phone, you're like, well, that's nothing. But of course, these devices really only send out 
bits and bleeps and thing of information here and there, hopefully depending on the device. You know, a, a water meter doesn't need to be sending out five gig of data every month, for example. No, it sends um, out like it's this time and not, I'm open, I'm closed, yeah. or I have consumed this much, or it's yeah, time there, series data. Exactly, exactly. Not continuous streams of data you know, that we would use, for example, for streaming video as one example. But um, so from a pricing standpoint, that 100 kilobytes will cost 350 Korean won per month, which is a whopping 30 cents US. And then if you want the big plan of 100 megabytes for your devices, it, it will cost you 2000 Korean won, which is all of a dollar seventy five. Now, not too bad. What's crazy is if you take the 30 cent per 100 kilobyte plan and you translate that to megabytes, you end yeah. up with double. Yeah. <laughs> double. It was like, was it thirty dollars for that was for a hundred uh, megabytes, right? Thirty no. cents. Uh, no, for so, one megabyte. Yeah. Wow, it adds up quick. So wow. if, if you're gonna consume any megabytes, I would go for a larger plan. Which yeah, again, this is what the carriers do. Let's oversell, let's make the more bigger buckets cheaper on a you know, per megabyte basis or kilobyte in this instance. And hope that people don't use as much as as they sign up for. So I think Colonel but, Sanders does that with his chicken buckets too. <laughs> I haven't had a Colonel Sanders chicken bucket in quite a while, and I've seen five different Colonel Sanders in the past two months. So I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Kevin's like, I'm scarred for life. Um, yeah. All right, so this is this is pretty cool. So and then there's also in Scotland the University of Glas- Glasgow, 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 Scotland. Scotland. Yes, I'm not going to do an accent because it would just be embarrassing. Um, they are also building a LoRa network in Glasgow. So LoRa is really taken off. Um, Sigfox, which is a French company, was we heard a lot about that about a year and a half ago. And I'll be curious to see how well, you know, LoRa versus Sigfox kind of plays out. I mean, there's no one that says we have to have one, but it right. is nice if you're buying a sensor and, you know, these are tiny, tiny little devices. They're not going to support multiple radio standards on one of these devices. Mm-hmm. So it's That's like, a good point. You, you don't have the flexibility that you might have with a tablet or a phone where you've got room to put in modems, larger modems and different radio antennas from different frequencies. So actually, that's a really good point. Maybe we do need one. Well, maybe we'll get just one. I imagine, I mean, if I were a city, I'd want some competition actually between, you know, the idea of going between a, a Sigfox versus a LoRa network would appeal mm. to me. The downside is, though, for a smart city, you really want it to be, you don't want to have one radio that works when, you know, you're in Austin and then a different radio that works when you're in Dallas right? on your right, car right. or on some of I mean. Well, you, you know what they're going to do. They're going to, there's going to be a whole market for hubs that go on telephone poles that take both signals and that way it's, it all works. No more hubs. I was like, and now we're back at the beginning. (laughs) All right. So now that we've come full circle, please stay tuned for our guest, Ryan Reist, who is at American Family Insurance. And we're talking about the future of insurance, the future of risk, and what technologies insurers might bring into your smart home. Hey, this is Stacy. I'm breaking into the IoT podcast for a sponsored message. I'm back with Todd Auska, who is the CTO of Wolf SSL. We're here today to talk about hardware acceleration for securing the Internet of Things. Now, you guys have invested a lot in building software that can take advantage of coprocessors on various devices. And why is that so important? 
You know, it's really important for our users and makers of devices because it increases their security level and it increases the safety for the users as well. Um, it decreases the cost because they don't have to have extra memory and faster processors. And it helps the consumer with cost too because there's less power consumption. So in the long run, they see a cheaper price to operate the device. It's also a huge, huge increase in performance. We're talking on the order of, you know, 10 times. Also from a consumer perspective, what does it have to do with security and how I might benefit? The security is already done in the hardware, so there's less chance for attack and you increase your safety. And if that sounds a little obscure in the home IoT market, you know, think of a, think of a printer attack where someone issues 100,000 jobs in a row. It goes over the, the duty cycle of the printer and they can actually start a fire. As a consumer, do I have much say or influence in helping make devices more secure? The biggest way consumers can have a say is by picking and buying devices, right, that have to meet their expectations. And in this case, you know, we're talking about privacy and security. And it's highly important to many, many users and probably most of your listeners. You know, no one wants to broadcast their IoT devices in vacation mode when they're on vacation, right? Or no one wants their life schedule public. So if I'm a manufacturer who cares about my customers, why should I implement better security on these connected devices? Good security helps the consumer with their privacy. It reduces brand risk for the builder. It reduces financial risk for the makers. So it's kind of a win-win as far as we see it. So you guys help implement all of this on over a billion IoT devices already. So where can people find you if they want to call you for more information? Yeah, the easiest way to reach us is wolfssl.com slash IoT. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is Ryan Reist, who is the Director of Innovation at American Family Insurance. Hi, Ryan. How are you doing today? Hi, Stacey. Doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Man, I am super excited because I think the insurance world has a huge role to play in adoption of the smart home. So this is going to be fun. Let's get started with you guys have been super innovative. Y'all done some partnerships with Ring, the connected doorbell company. Y'all done a partnership with Nest Protect, and that helps subsidize the cost of the devices in some cases. And you also offer a discount for companies who are installing these things. So what is your take on the smart home at AmFam? Yeah, so I, I'd agree with you. I think insurance companies uh, have a really unique role to play here. I think, you know, um, at American Family Insurance, we have been trying to sort of talk about insurance differently as protecting people's dreams, as, you know, elevating insurance out of this product that people don't really want to use, don't know what it is, um, are skeptical about it, um, don't interact with it much. And I think the smart home is um, a huge opportunity for an industry that is going to change a lot in the next, I think, 10 years. Okay, well, let's break down kind of the role of insurance going forward, because you're right. You guys are thinking about it very proactively. When I talk to you guys, you're telling me things like, Usually I only call my insurance company when something terrible has happened to me and then there's this haggling over price. And you guys are thinking about making insurance part of my life in a way that feels more helpful. So can you kind of break that down and talk about some of the stuff that you guys have implemented? Sure. So we talk about it, uh, this phrase, proactive protection. And I think the opposite of that is reactive reimbursement, which is really what insurance has been for a long, long time. And, it, you know, insurance plays this fundamental role in, in the economy. You know, how many people would own a home if you couldn't get 
insurance to help with the bank loan. So I think insurance plays this big role at a macro level, but a micro level, just consumers don't see the everyday value. So I think that's the huge opportunity. I think today, maybe last year, the year before, I think insurance companies' interest was really piqued by the idea of loss mitigation. So a home that has leak detectors is going to identify and detect the leak and hopefully the homeowner will prevent it before it causes massive damage. Uh, same with fires. We know that functioning smoke alarms prevent fires. So I think the original sort of interest was around loss mitigation, and I think that's definitely uh, an angle. I think the long-term angle, the, the better approach, is products, services, features that just help customers solve problems in the home. Okay. So what would that look like? So let's, let's fast forward three years. I've got a bunch of stuff in my home. How would I start to interact with my insurance company? Sure. So I think it starts with that sort of same digital mobile experience that you might use for a connected home product today. So I think that could be part of your insurance experience. I think an IoT triggered event like a leak detection, instead of just notifying you on your home, there might actually be a service behind that. Maybe we send somebody out to help you um, shut your water off or to help you start the process of cleaning up. So I think there could be services. That's one example. Today, what we're doing with Nest is where when your batteries get low, if you're part of our program, American Family automatically sends you replacement batteries. Now, the batteries last a long time, but that's a cool sort of thing that insurance companies never used to do in the history of insurance. You get this data, and it's really important to talk about your Nest program because people at first were like, ah, what's happening? Where's it? My insurance company seeing all my data? That's, that's a little scary. So with Nest, you don't actually see the data. Nest shares the information about the monthly check, right, of the battery life? Yeah, so there's two different programs with Nest. There's the Works with Nest. There's the Safety Rewards program. And the Safety Rewards program was designed for uh, the insurance industry. And we make it very clear when you enroll we ask customers if they're willing to share their data with us. So there's a clear opt-in, there's a way to opt out. And so we are getting battery health data uh, for the people that have, that have opted into that. We can then trigger an event based on low battery. So that's an example of a service that I think is the, really the tip of the iceberg for how we can get to really solving problems instead of just notifications popping up. So as part of the Nest program, the people who opt in get a subsidized Nest Protect, and they also get a discount on their insurance. What's in it for them other than, you know, not possibly dying in a fire? Yeah, well, so they get a discounted product. So with Nest, it's a, a free Nest Protect right now that we're, work, we're running in, in the state of Minnesota. And in addition, they get 5% off of their homeowner's policy. So there's definitely a monetary incentive to the customer. But when we talk about it to our customer base, it's about helping people safe. It's about proactive protection. We don't know yet the relationship between a DIY smart home, connected home, and insurance. Now, we have 85 years of history of all the bad things that can possibly go wrong in your home and cause damage and injury. So we're trying to figure out what is the relationship and can we prevent some of those bad things from happening? What are the next? So you've got the Nest, you've got a program with Ring. What else are you looking at? You know, Traditionally, going back a few years, I think there was a few insurance companies looking at the typical losses in the home. So fire, water, and theft, in that sort of order, are the perils, insurance perils. You know, 60% of the losses are really wind and hail, stuff that happens to your roof and siding. The other 40% is stuff inside the home. So can we create a marriage between connected home where we can actually help prevent these 
perils that are happening inside the home. So water is, is a really interesting space that we're looking at. Surprisingly, there isn't a ton of really great water detection solutions out there. There's a lot of sort of low-cost contact sensors you can put around that connect to a hub. But I think that's an area that we're seeing some, some innovation and in. we're seeing companies start to do more. It also kind of brings up the point of, of retrofit, which is this isn't like cars where everybody's going to have a new car in 10 years. Um, how do you retrofit a home? How do you put how do you encourage customers to let you in their home to stick a water shutoff valve that requires a plumber? That's a pretty big ask, right? So I think something I've heard you talk about is smart home is going to take a while to get there just because we're all living in homes that are going to need to be retrofitted. It's true. I, this, is, this is something that makes me so sad as I rip and replace all kinds of stuff. And my home is actually, it was built in 2013. And just in, just in three years, I'm like, oh, if only I had known about this, I would have put this in. Of course, it probably wouldn't work in five, so I won't worry about that. So what about trust? Because this sounds really nice. I, I would actually love to have, you know, a notification. Stacy, by the way, you've got a leak or we're sensing a lot of water coming into your house somewhere. Here's five plumbers that we cover in your area. You know, do you want us to start asking for estimates? That would be amazing. I would love you forever. But a lot of people look at this and think about things like they're going to start costing me money maybe if I don't fix something or they're going to see data and they're going to be like, oh, we do not want to insure that house. It's got like crazy drafts or I have no idea. So how do you kind of address the idea that you guys are going to get this data and use it for maybe differential pricing or I don't know, something punitive? I think that's a very natural an expected response from consumers, um, because I think if you if you look at the insurance industry as a whole, it needs to change. I think, and and customers, there have been things in the past that have happened in different areas where that have caused that skepticism. I think if you understand the business we're in and where we're at today, I think it makes more sense. So, let's walk down that example of you know the evil insurance company. I mean, I, already today, the insurance is in what we call a low engagement category. Consumers do not interact with it very often, other than paying for a bill. Maybe once every 10 years, you have a claim. And so to couple that with the fact that we live in an age of exponential technology growth, we live in an age of one-click Amazon shopping and Uber, these frictionless experiences that, that entrepreneurs are creating, that's a recipe for disruption. So I think any insurance company that thinks they're going to use this data to sophisticate their, their pricing model, which is already pretty sophisticated and not, not insure people or raise prices, how is that going to impact customer experience in any sort of positive way. It won't. And I think that's a recipe for failure. So, I mean, we're looking at this really at the long term and saying, how do we take an industry that, you know, isn't loved today and how do we make it loved? Because that's really where long-term success is going to rest. And as we add this kind of data, how does this change underwriting practices and kind of what risk is? Because if you can say, hey, you've got this sensor in your house that can detect a leak before it gets bad, you're reducing a, a large chunk of risk provided someone takes action. So does this mean like eventually over time, my insurance rates could go lower? Absolutely. In fact, insurance as we know it, risk as we know it is going to change. So take the car, for example. 
uh, people are predicting anywhere between 20 and 50 years that there will really won't be personal auto insurance. And you're seeing companies, the, the companies that are going to make the artificial intelligence that runs the car, they're going to pick up the liability insurance. Um, another example is, is cyber, cyber threats and cyber insurance. So much of the world is going from physical to digital that a lot of the threats are now in the cyberspace. So if, if you're not in the cyberspace 20 years from now, you know, will you be around? Will you be relevant? So I think risk is changing. Customer perception of the current industry is not great. And I think the connected home presents this wonderful opportunity to be a hero brand, be a better, better sort of company. You guys have a teen driving program. And I think this actually exemplifies that type of thinking. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I'm very passionate about that. That was my job for well over a year was to travel around middle America and meet with parents and teens and try to convince them to put this basically a video camera in their cars. And that's sort of the seeds were planted there, I think, of American Families Innovation and where we're at today. So what happened is there was a video event recorder that would get placed in the car and it would be triggered off of motion. So if the teen driver did an erratic turn or slammed on the brakes, all the things that actually lead to accidents, they would be a video clip that was sent to the parents. So it only recorded you if you did something, if you had a bad driving event. And so quickly over time, in a very short period of time, seatbelt use went from like 40% to 100%. So all of a sudden now kids were driving with their seatbelts. The next thing was parents started to talk about tailgating and not texting while driving and those types of things. So this program, now it was, you know, economically, was it sound? No, costs were way too high back then, but costs are coming down. And you can now do the same thing with your phone, basically. There's apps today that you can mount on your dash that do primarily the same thing. And out of that program, I saw parents in tears saying, I will never switch to another insurance company. You guys helped save my son or daughter's life. And that's a really powerful thing when you're in an industry that has historically not changed a lot. So to me, that was the sort of the seeds were planted of how the Internet of Things can drive a whole new different type of business. Okay, see, and I would unquestionably give that kind of power to you guys to protect my child. But if you came to me and said, hey, we want to install a video camera in your car every time you tail to, to show every time you brake rapidly, my husband would go for it. But I would be like, nope, nope. Well, yeah, and if you look at where the usage-based insurance industry has gone, there's very few companies. Uh, in fact, I think there's only one that's actually penalizing you for driving bad. Most of them, are it's a discount. I think most insurance companies are hesitant to go in that other direction and to penalize people for, you know, what could be perceived as risky behavior. I certainly know in American Family, we take incredible amounts of, of caution and um, effort to be, number one, transparent with customers. If they know what's going on and why you're using the information, if they opt in for it, if it's voluntary, and if there's some benefit to them, I think what we found in our certainly connected home and our uh, work in the connected car is that's the recipe for sort of mutual trust and success. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go into the connected home a little bit because you guys have experimented with, I think you told me for every program y'all implement, y'all have tried out 20 to 30 different other devices on the back end. So you've seen a lot of stuff. And where do you think the smart home is today? Yeah, I think if we were to assign an intelligence score, because we are, we are pitching to people that this is the intelligent home. I think it's somewhere, you know, around an IQ of a 60 or 70. I think it's, you know, it's sort of a mentally deficient home. It's not a smart home, but that's good because five, 10 years ago, it was a totally unintelligent home. But what I'm seeing as success is when companies 
solves very specific problems for customers in a wonderful way. So the Nest thermostat was way better than the old programmable thermostat. Solved a very specific problem, right? Didn't try to create a, a holistic smart home. The Ring video doorbell is about preventing thefts and burglaries in neighborhoods. And everybody has a doorbell. So everybody knows that the old doorbell did one thing and the Ring doorbell does like 20 awesome things. I should interrupt you for a second to note that you guys are an investor in Ring. Thank you. Yes, we are an investor. We have a venture capital team and we we have an investment in Ring. But Ring is interesting because people get it because they think that they want they want it to protect their homes. They love it that it faces outside in a public space. It's not it's not creepy in any way. It's not something somebody can hack and see inside their home. But when they get it, they have all these other benefits. Like they see when packages arrive and they see when you know friends come to the home and now you can unlock your door from Ring and some integrations that they're building. So I think Ring sort of broke through by being really, really good at solving customer problems in a specific area. So I think what's going to happen is now with sort of programs like Works with Nest, people get these things, it solves problems for them, and they can maybe get another thing and they add these building blocks. And then pretty soon things like uh, Amazon Echo come along, make it easier to work with them. And I think it's going to take time, but we'll, we'll get there. So let's talk about the Amazon Echo, because in the last probably, I'm going to say six to 12 months, that thing has just, everyone's like, oh my God, I have a smart home. I have voice control. It's it's amazing. It was, it's kind of like the iPhone moment for the smart home, possibly, I think. And what is your, I mean, do you have one? What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I, I have one. I Again, I we've tested basically all these devices. I've tested them in my home personally. Um, I've had some big family issues with cameras in the house. And the Echo is really interesting. If you follow sort of the customer adoption of these devices, it's, it's a lot of this stuff is early adopters who will buy anything if it's cool and gadgety, right? But what happened with the Echo is, you know, it took the interface from the phone and, and app fatigue to the physical world. And I don't think anybody would have predicted the Echo's success. And for me, you know, it's something that my kids use. And in fact, we've got a rule. If you, if you play shut up and dance one more time, the echo goes away. Um, and it's something my parents are now giving away to their friends. The problem with connected home is really bridging into that mass market. And I think part of that problem is the interface. Part of that problem, I think, is making the devices solve customer problems, real problems. And the second part of it is making it really easy and natural. I have to ask this because you were an investor, not you, AmFam was an investor in Revolve. And that feels like it was a step back for the industry, the shutdown of the Revolve hub and the absolute, the way it was handled felt really preemptory. And now they're giving a refund to people who bought it, or the Nest guys are giving a refund to people who bought it. But beforehand, they just were like, hey, we're going to shut this device down in May. And thank you. So how did you feel like that was handled or that could have been handled? You know, I can't comment on the specifics of Nest's handling of the Revolve shutdown. What I do think it shows you, and if you talk to the people at Bolt and other places that know hardware really well, it just shows you how difficult it is to be in this space. You know, how do you sunset a product? How do you turn something off? Because it was so publicized, I think it did do some damage to adoption as a whole because people were forced to suddenly realize that they're spending a lot on these things. And if something that's owned by such a legit company could suddenly go away like that, it was kind of like, whoa, what, am I really willing to invest on all this stuff? 
Yeah. So if you spend $200, $300 on a device, how long do you expect it to last? That's a, a great question. Uh, I think we're learning. I think the whole industry is still trying to figure that out. Got it. Okay. So final question for you, because you've tested so many things. What are your favorite devices or what are you looking for or excited about in the kind of years to come? What I'm really interested in now is um, how these devices and how the data from these devices can lead to services. So I think that I think the big opportunity for connected home is not notifications and apps. I think it's how the the data, the real data from the real world, which is this instrumentation of the world, which is what IoT is. How do we use that information to create pro- new products and services that never existed before? Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, we we still screen and test a ton of devices. I I think I still think um, Amazon Echo is sort of the breakthrough in the last year. There's a lot of cool stuff we're looking at now on the, sort of the water shutoff side. But I think really it's about services. I think that's what we're seeing from what consumers want. You know, we had a real big aha this last year, which was it's not really the connected home. It's the home that might that may be connected. It's the home and it's homeowners that are living in the home that have real problems that they need solved. Owning a home is one of the most complicated, challenging things we do. Maintaining the home. Um, there's things that you're not doing right now and I'm not doing that we don't even need. We need know we need to do like change the furnace filter every six months or what we've started to dive into is, is less of the gadgetry and more of the problems in the home and how can connected home be a part of a holistic solution that includes devices and services and insurance. I can't wait. I should ask you, I lied to you. One more question. Am I ever going to have to have like an app for my insurance company for monitoring this? Or do you guys want to do most of this through partnerships? I think you're, you're going to find delightful you know, if insurance companies do it right, which, you know, American Family certainly thinks we're headed in that direction, you're going to want to use your insurance app, mobile app or mobile experience, because it's more than just what's happening in your home. It might be contextual information about the weather. It might be information about non-IoT devices that you care about that are relevant. Oh, you could do a partnership with Nextdoor. You could be like, hey, there's been a rash of burglaries in your area. There was a company we looked at that was layering from connected home to external transportation. So do I want to go get on the the bicycle or do I want to take the bus? You know, so not just me in my home, but as I leave my home and go about my life. So there's, so I, yeah, I think actually the connected home app um, is going to be part of some bigger thing in the future. Now, is that insurance? We certainly hope we're have that sort of role in people's lives. Awesome. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this week's show. Please join us next week on the Internet of Things podcast. And thanks for listening. 